Let me pray. God, we just thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for these women that have come. Would you speak to us today? I am quite certain that many of us have walked into this room with a limp. We are limping because maybe our prayer lives are anemic. Maybe we don't pray because we don't really know how to pray. Lord, maybe we come in with a limp because we're grieving. Perhaps we're coming in with a limp because we're overwhelmed by the circumstances in our lives. Maybe there are relationship strains or financial strains, career issues, loneliness. What is it, Lord? But I'm certain that many of us have walked in today and we need to hear from you. And I thank you ahead of time because you say, if you will draw near to me, I will draw near to you. When two or more are gathered in my name, I am among you. And so thank you, Lord. Have your way with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we want to jump in today and I want to start by, I want to, I want to share with you a quote by St. Augustine. And I want you to kind of let it seep in for just a minute and see what you think about it and see if you can really connect to it. He says this, he says, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Thee meaning God. And this is on your listening guide. He says, our hearts, or you could translate that to mean souls, are restless until they find their rest in thee. My question this morning is, or this afternoon, is your heart restless? Is your heart restless? What woke you up at two in the morning? What is it that feels like it's slipping from your grasp and you're feeling a bit out of control? What is it that's creating a restless soul? I'll share with you just the most recent uh, experience in my own life. I have a 10-year-old son named Ben, and he's, I'll, I just think he's the greatest kid ever. And... He, uh, in first grade, he's in fourth grade now, in first grade he started to battle anxiety and it kind of came out of nowhere, it felt like a curveball and we really a, a tackled it through prayer and through medical attention and he really kind of turned a corner and he hasn't experienced any of it since until Sunday night. And Sunday night, Jason and I came home from an event that we were at and Ben was undone with the babysitter there and we prayed with them and but the next night, Monday night, he was still not feeling good, and then even last night. And I could see that anxiety rearing its ugly head again. And I'm telling you, at 2 in the morning, his mama was restless. And she was up, and she was in his room, and she was praying over that kid. Asking God, Lord, would you lift this off of him? Lift it off of him. Somebody said to me one time, you're only as happy as your saddest kid. So if you have kids in the room today, is that not true? I mean, they literally, they're going to kill us, aren't they? I'm telling you. And so I was praying, but my heart was restless. My heart was restless. But at some point in the night, probably the third time I was awake and, and went in there, there was a peace that kind of fell on me. And it wasn't because I just knew he wasn't going to struggle with anxiety again because he was this morning. But there was a peace that came through a connection with the Father. And I just sensed the Lord say to me, this is okay, I've got him. I've got him. And that was enough for me to go back to sleep and sleep like a baby for the next 30 minutes before the alarm went off. 
but my heart was restless until it found rest in God. Until it found rest in God. I looked up what restless actually means in the Webster Dictionary. There's three definitions, and I want to share them with you because I think it will help you connect a little more quickly. One is to be restless means to be worried or uneasy. To be worried or uneasy. Second definition means to be ceaselessly in motion. We're restless because we're ceaselessly in motion. Preach on that one. Sometimes I don't know if it's the cart before the horse, but I don't know if I'm restless because I'm so busy and I'm off to one thing from one thing to the next. And because of that, I feel like I never can catch a breath because I'm always on the go. And that's making me restless. But I also think there are times when I'm, I've got all the time in the world and I'm restless. So I create busyness because I don't want to sit by myself for very long. Sometimes we create a busy world so that we don't have to be alone with our own fears and thoughts and anxieties. And so we're restless because we're ceaselessly in motion. I'm telling you, even if I'm physically not ceaselessly in motion, oftentimes my mind is ceaselessly in motion. Third definition is lacking physical or mental rest. This week when I've been awakened with, um, in prayer for my, my children, it starts with a, a lack of mental rest that drives me into that prayer. Boy, are we living in a world with political unrest? Do y'all think so? Holy cow. Oh my goodness. I was like, wow, are we going to start burning bras again? What is happening? This is unbelievable. We are in a, in a season of life with social unrest that feels like it's off the charts. There are a lot of things in our lives, personal unrest, maybe... Like I prayed earlier, maybe you're experiencing unrest because of financial crises in your life, or maybe your marriage is in such a hard spot, or maybe you long to be married and you're lonely, or you're in a career that you feel like is a dead end and you know it's not the right fit for you, but you can't afford to quit, you can't stand your boss, and you're in unrest because of that. Is your soul restless? Is your soul restless? When the disciples asked the Lord to pray, teach me to pray, Lord, the first thing he said was pray like this. And he said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So I want to talk about that today because for many of us in the room, prayer, uh, a restless heart will drive us to prayer. But oftentimes we leave not feeling a lot better. We're still restless. And I think it's because the very first thing Jesus says when he says pray like this is he says the word Father. And I think for many of us in the room today, that may not have a real warm attachment to it. And so we come to God, but we come to him with a whole set of baggage attached to the identity of Father. And so not even realizing it, when we start our prayer toward God the Father... We come with a boatload of insecurities that he never intended for us to experience. And so we leave equally restless as we were when we came. And so we're going to camp out on that. Who do we pray to? Who is Father? Who is Father? There's a couple descriptions that Jesus gives us right off the bat. He resides in heaven. 
Our Father who is in heaven. And so I want to talk about heaven just very quickly. I'm going to talk about the, um, the title that Jesus is giving the Father, which is hallowed. We're going to talk about those two things. And then I'm going to camp out on Father. I'm going to camp out on who He is. And so the first thing is when Jesus says, Our Father in heaven. What He's trying to uh, convey to the disciples is not... He's your father and he's a distant land away. He's far away and he's sitting up somewhere in heaven and he's looking down on you hoping you get it right. What he means by that is he's residing as the king in heaven. He's the creator of heaven and earth. But in heaven resides no more tears. In heaven, every right is made wrong. In heaven, there is no more cancer. There is no more illness in heaven. In heaven, relationships are harmonious. In heaven, work is a joy and labor. There is no labor. It's all fruit. And so as God the Father who created heaven and earth resides in heaven, is the ruler of heaven and earth, he understands how jacked up earth is. And so he understands as the king on the throne what it ought to be like here. And we'll talk about that next week when we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What we're asking is, Lord, as it is in heaven, would you make it so on earth? And so when Jesus says, Our Father in heaven, he's saying he's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's not caught off guard. And not only does he see the strain that you're experiencing in your marriage currently, but he also knows how he intended for the marriage to be. He understands when you say, emotionally, Lord, I can't turn a corner. And he's saying, I know the spirit I gave you. And I also know the sound mind with which I planted into your little head. And I know what it ought to be like for you. And I'm all powerful. And I can actually do something about it. He's in heaven. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And then the second thing that Jesus says about him is that he's hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. What does it mean? What is hallowed? How many of y'all say hallowed? I say hallowed till my mentor said that sounds like a country hick. Please stop saying that. It's hallowed. (laughs) Hallowed, baby. Hallowed be your name. What that means is that he's holy and he's totally set apart. He's totally set apart. So if I'm going to call him father, I can't place human identity on God the Father. I can't dumb it down, put it into a box so that it makes sense to me. I have to know he's utterly, totally apart from me. I will not in this lifetime understand and fully grasp the holiness of God the Father. But I can certainly give reverence. Hallowed be thy name. In Isaiah 55 it says, Your thoughts are nothing like my thoughts, Lord, and your ways are nothing like my ways. And you're holy. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah caught a vision of the Lord, he said, woe is me. Why? Because he said, holy, you are holy and I am not. I am not. There is a reverence that is due him. Hallowed be thy name. But here's the thing. I can know that God is in heaven. I can know that he's all powerful. And I can also know that he's to be revered, that he's totally set apart, that he's utterly holy. And those are critical attributes that I have to understand about him. But if I don't know him as father, it will not help my intimate connection with him that he is after. I have to know 
that he's fathered. And when I do, when I began to settle in and open my heart to that and began to trust, Lord, you're a good God. You're a good, good father. Then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enter into his presence more frequently, his presence more frequently. I'm going to experience him. And that experience of his loving kindness will lead me to repentance, will lead me to my face to say, you are revered, you are holy. There is none like you. There is none like you. But what does Jesus mean when he says he's father, calling father? In the Old Testament, the word father was used about 12 to 15 times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus is saying father. It's used over 250 times. You see, because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover our sin, we can now boldly enter the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, crying Abba, Father, which means Daddy. Now here's why I think that's hard for some of us, if you're like me, is because our understanding of the word daddy might be a little bit skewed based on our experience with our own earthly father. Or I want to broaden that, not just my earthly father, but it could be anyone that's, that's had um, high impact or influence in my life in a position of authority. And so I want you to think about that for just a second, and then I'm going to give us some descriptions. But if you had to name in your mind the top three greatest influencers in your life, who would they be? Think about that for just a minute. For me in my life, hands down, my mom and my dad, just for time-wise, I mean, I was with them the most too. I've had some coaches and teachers that have been incredibly influential in my life pastors that have been influential in my life, spiritual leaders. My husband is a great influencer in my life. Who are kind of the top three or four in your mind? I want you to think about that for just a second. And with that as your backdrop, I want to give you some descriptions about, those, about these influencers that might reveal to you, oh, okay, because of this connection with my earthly father or my mother, or whomever, I've kind of transferred some thoughts onto God that might not actually be accurate. Okay, so hang with me for just a second. I want to give some descriptions. If these influencers are authority figures, if, if this main person or persons were harsh with you, harsh. Some of you may have grown up with a military father. Not that you're in the military makes you harsh, but you may have grown up with a militant father who was harsh. And so if that's true for you, then you might find yourself experiencing some fear with God the Father. You might walk on eggshells with him and you didn't even realize it because that's been your experience. Maybe you had a dad or a mom or someone in your life that was passive. Passive. This would explain um, in, in pretty good detail my dad. I have, a, my dad went to be with the Lord about five or six years ago and he was a wonderful, affectionate, loving father, but he was passive. And what I mean by that is he wasn't engaged in my life. He didn't say, stop doing that, Laura, unless it was really annoying him. But he didn't come in and say, I mean, I don't think he ever knew a grade I ever made. I don't know that he ever knew a boy I ever dated. He was passive. He was passive. Now, when, when he walked, right before he walked me down the aisle, he said to Jason, if you hurt her, I'll kill you. And, and, <laughs> and I'll never forget that because I thought, that was the most protection I had felt from my dad. And I was 30 years old. My dad loved me, though. 
He was just a passive father. And so because of that, I've always had a sense that it's kind of on my shoulders. It's up to me. I'm on my own. I'm loved, but I'm on my own. And so I'm a get-her-done kind of girl because of that. And so the way that's translated to God the Father is that I'm going to try and fix it myself before I come to Him. For years, He was not my first go-to and all, because I just didn't know that He'd even care. If you have a, a, a parent or an influencer that's been distant in your life, you will wonder if God cares for you. To be intimate with the Father will be a stretch. It'll be something that He's going to grow you into. It may be difficult. He may seem distant to you. If you had a really busy parent, they were workaholics, always on the go, busy, 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 you might feel unimportant. I was visiting, I was talking with a friend of mine about this, and she said, growing up, she had a sibling with special needs. And she said, I always remember my mom super, super engaged with my sibling because she had to be. It wasn't out of malice or it wasn't out of neglect for my friend, but that was just the way it was. But the result of, the result that came from that is my friend felt unimportant. And she felt like, I've got to strive. I've got to go over the top. I'm going to be an overachiever just to get attention, just to warrant the same amount of time spent with me. And she said that sent her on a trail, and she's just now coming to realize that and how that's impacted her relationship with God. She's a, I mean, I'm telling you, this girl is unbelievable. She's got her ducks in a row, but she's believing that those ducks in a row is what makes her worthy to have time with the Father. If you had a parent in your life that was a perfectionist or maybe a coach that you were, maybe you were a strong athlete and you had a coach that had a lot of time with you and they were perfectionists, you might feel like you've got to get your act together before you can come to God. You've got to get your act together. Maybe you had an influencer that was super demanding, super demanding in your life, and so you might feel like it's an obligation to pray, but you don't really want to. Did any of you in this room, some of us probably in the room, couldn't wait to leave and go to college? It's like, I'm never coming back. Because there was, your home was like a pressure cooker, and you couldn't wait to get out of there. And so you may feel that way a little bit. Uh, couple more. One is you may have a parent or somebody that's unfamiliar. Did you ever wonder what your dad was thinking? Did you ever wonder what um, your mom was thinking? I remember growing up, um, my parents divorced when I was 13, but I witnessed a lot of unrest in my parents because stuff was going on behind the scenes that I didn't know about. And, and unnecessarily, I attributed that I must be annoying them or something because there's a short fuse all the time. And it was because they were so stressed, so stressed. And so for me, I've had to overcome the thought, maybe I'm annoying God. Oh gosh, I'm sorry I'm coming to you with this again. I should have had this figured out by now. You see how that happens? It's so subtle. It's so subtle. Maybe you, um, your parent was a buddy-buddy. I have a friend that was sharing this with me. She said, my dad was just like that playful, buddy-buddy kind of dad. Boy, I'm telling you, I'll take it. That's great. But what's happened is she has a very, um, it, it's hard for her to revere God. It's hard for her to revere God and have the, the uh, necessary understanding that he's holy, that he's totally holy. So those are some things I want you to think about. 
And, and when you do, I don't want this to derail us today and for you to go, okay, what is it? Let me think. What? Just ask God, is there a way, is there a, a hindrance or maybe some way that I'm limping when I come to you that you've not designed for me to experience? Is there some way, like, do you find yourself, if you're, if you're hesitant to pray or you may be a little insecure in your prayer life or you're unsure about it, ask God to reveal to you, is it because I have a false understanding of who you are? Am I afraid of you? Is there any reason I would be walking on eggshells before you, God? And help me drill down and see where that's coming from. The reason God wants you to do that, the reason I'm asking you to take time this week to do that, is because God wants to lead you to greater freedom. God wants you to experience the rest that your soul was created to experience. And it will not be resting in anything other than God himself. And so God's saying, come to me. Come to me. It's kind of like this. This is kind of a, a, a picture in my head of what it's meant to look like. My daughter is eight. And when she was two, we were driving through the drive-thru at McDonald's. And she wanted ice cream. And she hadn't eaten lunch. And I said, you're not eating ice cream until you eat this nutritious meal <laughs> of the deep fried nuggets at McDonald's. Or, I mean, deep fried chicken product of some kind. And she lost her mind. She lost her mind in the drive-thru at McDonald's. So we're driving through McDonald's, and she, thank God, I was in an enclosed space. I rolled the windows up as fast as I could when we got our order. I didn't get her ice cream. She wanted nothing to do with the French fries. That's a vegetable. She didn't want anything to do with the nuggets. She was so mad, and she was behind in the back seat, strapped into her car seat, and she was just kind of flailing trying to get out, and she was strapped in, bound in by these, these car straps, and she's just losing her mind. And I pull around the drive-thru, and as soon as I do, my friend sees me from inside McDonald's and comes banging on my window, opens the car door, and hops in. And it was one of those horrifying moments, because I was like, <laughs> I'm busted. I'm busted. And because before I had kids, I, I was that person in Target. When your kid was going nuts in Target, I was like, get it together. Come on, what, what the heck is going on, parent? And so we pulled over in the parking lot at McDonald's, and Beth is losing her mind. And instead of going, listen, you better stop crying. You better stop crying. Stop that. Stop crying. Don't you see Jane's in the car with us? Stop that. Stop that crying. For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit took over, and I just gently took her out of her car seat, and I just pulled her over into the front seat and I just held her and I just was calm and soothed her. And she just, just calmed down. And she took a deep breath and she was relaxed. And she eventually fell asleep. And in that moment, I thought that's exactly what prayer is. When I am bound up by my insecurities, by my circumstances that can't change, by all of those things that grieve me, that cause me to lose my mind. God is not saying to me, now you better stop crying, Laura. You pull it together. This is embarrassing. <laughs> He's not saying that. And so Jesus is trying to communicate, pray like this. Say, Dad, let the Lord unbound you, unbind you, bring you over into his lap and cradle you in his arms. Do you know that that's an experience that you actually can have? Do you know 
that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can experience a comfort and a peace and an intimacy with God the Father that no one can take away from you. That no one can take away from you. That is why we pray. Because it's when we experience the presence of God so thick that we think He must be right here that we can relax and regardless of my circumstances, I can hear His voice now. I can understand what He's asking me to do. I can just realize He's with me. I'm not alone. I'm not drowning. It's going to be okay. But I've got to be willing to risk getting into His arms. That's what prayer is. I want to look at a passage of scripture that we're going to walk through and I'll walk through it with you because the reason I want to to view this so closely today is because this highlights for us authority figures in this sweet girl Hagar's life that were not the greatest examples for her but we get to see in contrast to their involvement in her life we get to see God the Father move into her life because I want you to see a picture of what this might look like. So join with me, Genesis 16. We're going to walk through this and then we'll close. I want to give you the backdrop. We're talking about Abram and Sarai. God later changes their names to Abraham and Sarah, so you may be familiar with those characters in the Old Testament. Uh, When we find them in Genesis in the story, Abraham is 75 years old and Sarah is 65 years old and they've never had children. And she longed for a child. And God shows up in Abraham's life and says, guess what? Sarah's going to have a baby. Okay, but she's 65. 65 is 65 then as it is today. And he says, nothing's going to be, and I'm paraphrasing, but God's saying, I can do anything. I'm all powerful. She's going to bear a son. He's going to be named Isaac. And you will, your descendants will be so great that you can't even count them. They're going to be greater than the number of um, sand on the seashore, the grains of sand on the seashore. And so when that happens, I don't know if you've ever got a vision or you've ever had an idea and you think God's leading you somewhere and you think, okay, well, God's told me this, so it's going to happen next week. Can't wait. Can't wait. That healing's coming. That marriage is changing. That career's going to change. Doors are going to open up. Well, let me tell you something. Where we find them in this story, it's been 10 years since God spoke that to Abraham. 10 years. 10 years would make me cranky and weary and tired of waiting. And that's where we find Sarah. Some of us in this room know that when you've been in a long season, maybe your health has been, you've been battling something for a long time. Maybe you've been longing for a dream to come true for a long time. And you you believe this is what God's leading you toward. You believe you're in his will, but it's just never changing. That kid is still wayward. You know what happens if you're not connected to God in a season of waiting and endurance like that? You get cranky. And not only do you get cranky, but you go to crazy town in your thoughts. And you start to think what seemed irrational 10 years ago seems really rational today. That's where we find them. Let's look at them. In verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, Now Sarai and Abram's wife have not been, had not been able to bear children for him. She had not been able to bear children for him. Describe in a word how she might be feeling in this moment. What? Desperate. Pressure. Failure. Yes. Tired. 
It says, but she had an Egyptian servant, that's also translated that word in Hebrew as slave, named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. You see where we've gone to crazy town? (laughs) All of a sudden, that makes sense. Let me tell you, are you in an enduring season of loneliness? If so, you're really vulnerable. You're, you're vulnerable. Be careful of what you're doing with your thoughts and your time and get off Facebook. Do not ask for a friend request. Don't do it. So it says, Abram, this is what cracks me up. Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. I said this yesterday. I was like, this is where that whole thought of happy wife, happy life is a line you don't need to cross here. Sarah's saying, take Hagar, sleep with her. She's going to give you a child so that I don't have to bear the weight of this anymore. I'm so tired of this. And Abram agrees to it. So Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after they'd settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. How's Hagar feeling in this moment? Used used. So right off the bat, y'all, we see authority figures in Hagar's life that are treating her in a way they should have known better. Why are they doing this though? Because they're in deficit themselves. Here's the thing. Today is not a day for us to go, well, that stinking dad of mine, he totally messed me up. Listen, y'all, we are so flawed. My kids will be in counseling for probably the same reasons I was in counseling for my parents. I'm hoping I'm getting it right. My parents did the very best they could and so did yours. And if they didn't, you're still not a victim. You still don't have to sit in that pit and refuse to come out of it. But the reality is Abram and Sarah knew who God was. They knew him. And yet they chose in a desperate moment to step outside of his will and take matters into their own hands. And it cost Hagar. My parents were not perfect, and many times they probably stepped out of God's will, and it cost us. I am not perfect, and there are times I have exploded in anger. There are times I have failed to show up for my children. You name it. I'm sure I've done it, and it has not been God's best for them, but it doesn't mean that God's the one that did it to them. So I want you to see that because that's really critical because here's the thing. Hagar is not following their God. She's an Egyptian slave. So how is she going to, what do you think the description in her mind is of God the Father based on these two followers that she's in contact with? What do you think it is? No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. Y'all, Christian leaders in your life can be the most hurtful and wounding, can they not? Okay, so she gets pregnant. She begins to treat Sarah with contempt. She's not an innocent flower either. Hagar begins to treat her with contempt. And here's why I think another translation says she hated Sarah. And here's why I think, I would too. I would too because she was powerless in this moment. She had no choice. And now that she's pregnant, she doesn't even get to keep her child. So she endures the morning sickness She endures the labor and has to give her child away 
because of this woman, Sarah. So she begins to treat her with contempt. Sarah says to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now she's pregnant. She treats me with contempt. Sarah, OMG. She's like, okay, I'm the one that grabbed the reins. I'm the one that made this decision. And now that it's not working out, it can't be my fault. It's your fault. Your fault. I can't relate to that at all as a wife, but maybe some of you in the room can. I'll pray for you. Um, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, and now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord's going to show you who's wrong. So now she knows exactly what God's going to do. See, God actually told her what he was going to do, and she started to disbelieve that. So she brought Hagar into the picture, and now all of a sudden she knows exactly what he's going to do, and she's gonna, he's going to squish Abram. Right? I, I think Sarah could use a, a little bit more connection with God the Father. Verse 6, Abram replied, look, she's your servant. That's, this is blame shifting at its finest. She's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Sarah treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Y'all, what do we do when we get into a really tight spot? How do we run away? Is it 5 o'clock somewhere in your house? <laughs> You know you can't afford it, but you don't care because it's going to make you feel better. Press send. You can't wait for Amazon to show up on your doorstep. <laughs> right? How do we escape? How do we run away? Because many of us, we have all of us in the room, have lots of responsibilities on our plate. And we can't physically run away all the time, but we sure do run away, don't we? Don't we? Hagar finally runs away. So we've seen a picture of the authority in her life. What are some of the descriptions that she might have placed on God now based on these two people in her life? Is God trustworthy to her? Probably not. Abram, the head of the house, one, took her in because Sarah told her, and then once Sarah started to mistreat Hagar too, Abram didn't stand up for her. He was passive. She wasn't protected. So do you think it's going to be natural and easy for her to believe that God is a protector? No. And we see that because she ran away. And when you see where she goes, she goes to the wilderness along the road of Shur. That's away from the land of God's people. She's running away, not just from Abram and Sarah, but she's running away from God. I do the same thing. So do you. We run away in our desperation. But let's look and see what happens in uh, verse 7 when Hagar's life is about to change. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. Here's what you and I have to understand today. The Lord finds you. The Lord finds you. You don't find the Lord. The Lord finds you. You're here today because you think somebody pestered you to finally get you here. It is the Lord that has drawn you here today. The Lord didn't look down and say, if Hagar would just stop crying. Hagar didn't say, God, help me. I'm in, I'm in a pickle. I've been abused. I need you. Okay, well, then the Lord shows up. The Lord found Hagar in her darkest place. Her darkest moment, when the thoughts going across her brain would have been horrifying had they been displayed for others to see. In her very worst moment, God found her. This is true for you 
and this is true for me, because we serve a God that is unlike any of our earthly leaders, spiritual or non-spiritual. We serve a God that is utterly, totally set apart. He is holy without sin. He only moves toward me in goodness because of the bloodshed of his son. He only moves toward me in goodness. He loves me. He sent his son to die for me. He is trustworthy and he finds me and he finds you. Somebody just own that for yourself today in your darkest place. He says, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? She comes clean before him and says, I'm running away from my mistress. Some of us just need to come clean before the Lord. How many of us approach prayer like, okay, dear God, dear God, dear God, thank you, God, thank you, God, I'm sorry, God, okay, amen. And we can't understand why our prayer life isn't taken off. Why we don't feel a connection with God. Some of us need to go, Lord, I am coming to you and I am mad and I don't understand why this has happened. And where were you here? And God, help me understand this. And this is the raw picture of where I sit today. Listen, the Lord can handle it. I can be totally raw and never lose reverence. I can be totally raw. Reverence doesn't mean I don't get to be honest. Reverence doesn't mean I have to approach him with a certain tone. Reverence means I never lose sight that he is God and I am not. And here's the thing. There have been times where I've come to him and I'm not very reverent. I'm coming with clenched fists like I'm demanding God, you must do this. And God in his grace says, okay, let's take a deep breath. Thankful for the blood covering. And let's sort this out. Hagar says, I'm running away. I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm running away. That's what she says. The angel of the Lord says, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. For the sake of time, return to your mistress and submit to your authority. Not what I want to hear from Hagar. But here's what God is promising. You're not going back the same. So oftentimes, God might deliver us from something. From the heartache, from the illness, from the pain, from the... He might deliver you from it. He might. I know people that have been miraculously healed. But the majority of people I know have experienced God's deliverance through the thing. God's going to take you all the way through it to the other side. And all the way through it is never a joy ride. It is not. All the way through it. But He will deliver you all the way through it. Every step of the way. Every step of the way, he will never leave us or forsake us. That's his word. He cannot deny himself. So he says, go back, submit to her authority. Why? Because you're going to go back into the place you thought was hell, and you're going to experience power that you didn't know was possible. And you're going to experience peace and love and compassion for authority figures in your life that you cannot stand. Go back, submit to her authority, and I will be with you. He says, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. I want to skip down to verse 13 because we're in a pinch. Therefore, Hagar, after she's had this experience with the Lord, it says, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord. Praise God. Used another name to refer to the Lord. Here's what's afforded to you and to me. When you experience the sweet, tender, loving connection of God the Father, you will rename him. You may have come to him a little scared, and you may have come to him thinking, oh, he's big. I don't know how he feels. And then you're going to experience the tender, loving hand of the Lord in your life, and you're going to call him faithful. 
and you're going to call him steadfast. And you're going to call him the God who sees me, which is exactly what Hagar named him. Bear Lahai Roy is what she named the place where she sat and experienced him for the first time. Have I truly seen the God who sees me? That is my prayer for us this semester. I want to close with this, and I'm sorry that I've gone a little over, but it says this in Lamentations 3. This may be where you sit in your life today. And in Lamentations, Jeremiah the prophet said, When life is heavy and hard to take, go off by yourself. Enter the silence. Bow in prayer. Don't ask questions. That doesn't mean you can't. It just means be still. Be quiet. Wait for hope to appear. Don't run from trouble. Take it full in the face. He says, the water rose over my head and I said, it's all over. Some of us may feel as though we're drowning today. He says, I called out your name, O God. I called from the bottom of the pit and you came close when I called out and you said, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Psalm 116 says, return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. Our Father is a good, good Father. Wherever you find yourself today, enter into the silence. Return to rest. Come to Him knowing, listen, you're worthy of my trust, Lord. Teach me in the areas that my heart still don't understand it. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for our time together. Trusting, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will implant into our hearts those things that we need to retain and that there would be no confusion in the room but that we would grasp very clearly the message you're trying to speak over and to and through us today. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, ladies, for being here today. We'll be back next week.